This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Well, I think anybody uh, wants to get better at what they do, especially if it's a calling. And what I'm trying to do in this book is just give a lot of encouragement and practical tips to make a, some steps forward, you know, not to try to overhaul everything about the preaching task, but just say, here are some things that, that I can work at and some, and things I can try on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday uh, afternoon when I'm thinking about a sermon preparation that might, you know, help me make a step towards improvement and just doing that faithfully over the long haul. Um, I think a lot of people, they're also their encounters, you know, when they get a chance to preach, whether that's a lay, lay person in the church or an elder um, or maybe an associate pastor, they don't get to preach every Sunday. And, mm-hmm. you know, they maybe get to preach once a month or once every couple of months. And so their sermons end up being kind of everything in the kitchen sink sermons <laughs> as you, as you talk about. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, how do you avoid those just very obvious natural pitfalls that we we've all fallen into if any of us who have preached. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there are probably several essays you might be thinking of from the book where I try to address that. One of them is certainly this idea of encaustic, uh, where you play the long game, um, to change metaphors already, but you, you right. think about, uh, that any individual sermon is not my life work, you know, and that I'm going to try to do one faithful thing today and let this text speak to these people this day. I mean, it's kind of related to the kind of overall life principle that I would draw from what I like to call Christ stoicism, which is uh, be present to this person, to this moment, you know, to this, to this day and just to this thing, you know, just to be present to this and have that be enough and do it faithfully. Mm -hmm. So now with, and I think especially when you have somebody who's not preaching every week, you're right. The temptation to, to say everything, or I have to bring everything I, or even just everybody when you're studying, you know, maybe you read some Mm -hmm. commentaries and read Tim Keller's sermon and you listen and you think I've got to say all this stuff. Well, you know, less is more when it comes to Mm -hmm. preaching. Less is more because something well said, well illustrated, and well applied is far more valuable than just a everything you thought this week or the last year about this text. You know, that's not preaching. That's that's data download. You know, that's right. not preaching. Preaching is a monological, joyful invitation to see in a certain way. Yeah, I think this is a serious problem. And and also when you're studying very heavily, you just start thinking like, oh, well, everybody I'm reading talks about the eschatological discourses. And so when I'm preaching, I have to make sure and mention the eschatological discourses. Or uh, I, I've been doing some work in hermeneutics, right? And then you watch mm-hmm. half the people's faces go, what, what does that yeah, mean? Totally, Why is he saying totally. this? Uh, the, so, I, I mean, I think there really is a almost a uh, two schools here. One is doing the hard work of making it 
uh, not simple for the sake of simplicity, but simple f- so that, that it's actually teachable. And then there's the other one that's just like, well, I got to dumb down all this really intelligent talk, all this uh, things I want to say. So I guess, how do you avoid that kind of temptation to dumb down, which I think means you basically end up patronizing people and, mm-hmm. um, and talking to them like they're children. Uh, and I guess why wouldn't people want to do that? Uh, why would people want to avoid gear shifting, uh, what they've studied for the sake of the people in front of them? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Little pithy or not so pithy little statements and moral, moral claims. And, you know, I, I found over the years that if I find myself doing that, that's because I haven't really prepared or I haven't mm. really engaged or been engaged. You know, the, the mode of, of trite little sayings is a, that's an indication or an evidence of lack of depth of thought. It's not a, it's not hmm. a virtue by any means. Um, but I, I can't remember if I say it in this book, but I say this all the time. One of my favorite concepts, one of my favorite sayings is the idea that on on this side of complexity is simplistic on the other side of complexity is simple. And the idea mm-hmm. is that when you, you know, things that are worth talking about and things that are worth giving our lives to and things that are worth rejoicing in are complex and nuanced and multi-layered and deep. But until you enter into that depth, you're only going to have a simplistic understanding of something. And if you, if you approach the pulpit uh, with, without having done that deep work and you're just giving simplistic things, it's just going to be about as helpful as leaf raking, you know, in mm. mid fall, you know, I've got, I've got these huge pin oaks in my house. You've been to my house. Oh, I've got these huge yes. pin oaks in the front. I've had and, pin oaks before. Yeah. And the entire rest of the neighborhood has been done with leaves for like three months and mine <laughs> are still dropping leaves. And it's yeah. like, so it's completely unmotivating to rake at all because it's the, literally the next day there's going to be just as many leaves, right? So, so the point is there, you know, that this sort of futility of just doing things on this simplistic way, you're not going to be fed. People aren't going to be fed, but neither is showing up in the pulpit or the lectern or the conversation in the depth of that super deep complexity, most people need you to get on the other side of complexity to simple. Right. And Mm. that's the way to think about it, that there's this, the the sign of true knowledge the sign of true understanding, I should say, is that you're able to explain something in a simple way that Mm. is still has the gravitas has the feel of meaningfulness because it's rooted in depth, but it's clear and simple. As you probably remember, back in the PhD years, one of the things they always said to us is that you know you're done with your dissertation when you can write it on a postcard, you know, mm-hmm. and that and that's the same principle here that that you know a 350 page dissertation like I wrote or thesis like I wrote is I'm not done with it until I can describe it in the or the elevator speech. That's the other way to talk about right. it. you know if somebody asks you what's your what's your thesis about? Well, if it takes you 20 minutes to describe it, then you're not done. You're, there's no way, but if you can describe it in clear a, in your throat, in a minute, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. If you can describe it in a minute, or if you could write it on a postcard, that means you've gone through complexity to simple, and that's a sign of understanding, and that's what our preaching needs to be marked by. Yeah, and and maybe you, and you do talk about this in the book. Uh, just to remind you, you, you actually talk about this exact issue, and I think maybe even we're swapping out the word simple with clarity uh, or mm-hmm. you know it's the, the reason it's simple is, is in order to be clear and the reason mm-hmm. it's clear is because it's simple um and that's a sign of understanding and clarity that also 
it sounds like for a lot of us that you're you're really coming after our, our ego, our sense of identity, because you you have to be confident enough to stand up there and say something that sounds like it's rather simple. Um, I I too had the experience of I went home to my church, my home church, after finishing my PhD. And they said, well, maybe you could preach on what you did your PhD on. I said, I, I, I could actually do that. It was biblical theology, so I could walk through that. And 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 so I, I laid it out in a 25-minute talk, you know, like um, in order to see what God is showing us, we must listen to his authorities and, and obey and do what he says in order, you know, to see. And I remember several older ladies coming up to me afterwards going, now, why did you have to move your family to Scotland to like to figure out what was so dead obvious from Scripture? Uh, and I, and and again, in my mind, that was a sign of success. Okay, yeah. a I clearly communicated it, and B I must have picked up on something because even the old ladies that know Scripture really well uh, knew that this yeah. was true. So, right, right. You you give lots of in this book uh, practices, which I think is very helpful. I wonder if you could just describe to us. The ideal preacher's life, what she or he may be doing throughout the week uh, and, you know, before they preach and then again after they preach as well. Uh, you do this throughout the book. What are the kinds of things they're doing that really uh, sharpen them into the kind of person who can preach effectively to the people God has put in front of them? Hmm. Yeah, it's probably going to vary quite a bit in terms of church situation you know if there there might be someone whose almost entire role is preaching that's very different than someone who is spending a lot of time doing pastoral care and hospital visits and ministry and leading you know so a lot of it has to do with the size of a church um mm. as well so i i wouldn't want to communicate that there is one way that this is going to look for people um but some of the things i some of the essays in the book I, i'm trying to Again, just give little adjustments that you can make uh, to uh, just to make improvements. And one of them I call snack writing, where you you are thinking ahead uh, and doing being willing to do little bits, take little notes, or or just be have your antennae aware throughout the week of preparation for some illustration or some idea uh, and you're recording it and, and, and grabbing that snack uh, while you can, instead of trying to do all your sermon writing in big blocks. Um, I also think I have an essay in there about how sculptors work that sometimes you're chipping away large sections and sometimes you're doing, ding, 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 you know, a little, and to do both of those things, have that be part of the rhythm of, of writing uh, or preparing a message is don't rely on just these big blocks of time, but just kind of have your antennae awake all, all the time. Uh, that way you can be grabbing illustrations and, or imagine yourself, you know, covered in, in uh, masking tape that's, facing out or double-sided mm. tape. So as you're going through the week, you're like stuff sticking and you're going, ah, yeah, I could integrate that. And most of it, you probably won't end up using, but that's okay. Mm. It's all cat fur. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, I was actually having like, like uh traumatic flashbacks for when I was a youth pastor, we did a game where you turn masking tape outside right. and then you had Reverse to like pick stuff them. up. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. had to pick stuff up with like your head and, you know, and, yeah. and both whoever, and uh, you know, early youth pastor days. And one, I didn't realize that with a long hair short oh, story, yeah. we had to cut a bunch of a girl's hair <laughs> after the game. 
<laughs> it was it was not my best youth pastor moment. There were other bad moments too, but that was one of them. I'm still traumatized by the uh, uh, unfortunate report to the parents that we had to cut the cut the girl's hair. But anyways, yeah. As a former children's pastor, I I, I can wholeheartedly sympathize. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many times where I'm just like, yeah, I did not think that one through. Totally. Uh, totally. I needed a developed imagination. Okay, so you're snacking and grabbing. I, I, actually, as you describe this in the book, it, it's actually a lot of the way I do a lot of things where I think, mm-hmm. oh, I want to. I need to write on this in two weeks. I better start thinking about it now. Mm-hmm. I better For start sure. just kind of going in this general contemplative mode on the topic. Yeah. Which isn't me trying to wrangle the idea down. It's really just kind of mulling uh, mm-hmm. the idea in various times and places. So that was helpful. Yeah, so slow roasted pork butt sermon yeah. writing. I could have, instead of walk, W-O-K, you know, instead of you're not stir frying a sermon, you are you should be slow roasting it, I think. Yeah, nice. And then um, in the actual writing, of, what we say writing of the sermon, uh, should people be writing their sermons? I think so. Um, I think it's really good to manuscript out mostly where you're going because writing is the means to understanding, not just the output of understanding. And that is that as you write, you get a clarity of thought. Um, for me, I'm an oral processor. So I figure out what I think mostly by talking to people, you know, and mm-hmm. so thankfully I have a job where I get paid to just talk in front of people all the time <laughs> and as a teacher and a professor and a pastor. And so I, that's my main mode of figuring stuff out, but it's sloppy and it's uh, dangerous, especially to do that from the pulpit, in my opinion. So it's really mm-hmm. good to, to force yourself to do that talking out loud on paper to get a clarity of what you want to say now, period. Now, that's not the same thing as what you do in the pulpit or behind the lectern even. even. I think that uh, you want to be more free. I actually still take a manuscript into the pulpit, but I don't think almost anyone would know that I actually have a manuscript there because it's largely memorized or at least I'm looking down at it and looking back up and mostly making eye contact with people. So for me, it's a bit of a Linus security blanket still, honestly. Um, yeah. and, I, and I'm trying to grow to uh, be less dependent on it. Uh, but I still feel like I've got room to grow there, but yeah, I think the first five years or so I preached, I wrote every word out and would rehearse it 10 to 12 times until Mm, I virtually had it. And nobody knew that I, that I had written every word out. Um, so, and I, I think, um, yeah, I wonder if you would say Everybody should, or people who tend towards oral processing like you and I do, it's, mm. it's probably a safer practice. That's a fair question. I don't, I don't know, because I'm still pretty committed to the idea that you don't really know what you think until you are forced to articulate it. Arti- again, articulation is not, so to use a metaphor that is an unhelpful one, that we typically do, you know, a lot of the metaphors we use today relate to computers because computers Mm. are such a large part of our lives. And so we often think of uh, writing as hitting print on our thoughts. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's really not what writing is. Writing is the process of thinking. It's like, it's, you're forced to, to articulate. This is why historically you think like the Oxbridge tutorial system or something is one example, like you, you are writing an essay all the time you're because Mm -hmm. it's only in doing so that you are, you really come to understand. And for me, I don't know what your experience in St. Andrews was, but the, one of the biggest things I learned in the first year was, especially because I was involved in 
teaching some undergraduates was that um, the British system viewed writing as the process of learning where the American system tended to view writing again as the the output of what you understand. Yeah. And, no, and to right. me, that was a real turning point. Like, oh, writing is really important. And it's not just hitting print. It is the, it is the process of understanding. So. why I make all my undergrads have weekly writing assignments. Totally. It's the Dif- best. It difficult, is. small weekly writing assignments. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's a, I think that's very helpful to think through. So even if maybe, cause some people's minds do that, you know, they have a linguistic center that works very different than mine. And so I could imagine somebody might be able to script out in their minds, a, big chunks of their sermon uh, without like me having to think it through manually by writing it out. But at the end of the day, you would you would like to see the manuscript some out before you before you just assume that your mind. I think a lot of people we tell ourselves stories like, "Oh, I'm a visual learner. I'm an audio learner." Right. Turns out, when tested, nobody is actually a visual learner or an audio right. learner. So, so maybe manuscript out and then see how it goes after you've tried that for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the big thing where you and I may honestly just disagree about this, uh, which is fine because we're friends. We can, mm-hmm. we can, uh, tolerate the, we can take the hit, Totally. but, um, I guess I wonder how much significance you put on preaching itself. Um, like it, is it the central act of the worship service or do you mm-hmm. think it's just kind of an auxiliary and if auxiliary, how much, you know, how mm-hmm. much emphasis should it have? Can you, can you have a worship service without preaching, uh, for instance? Yeah. Boy, that's, that is a really good question. I, I don't anticipate we totally disagree on this. As you probably know, and most of the overhearers of our conversation may or may not know, you know, preaching is a particular emphasis in the Protestant tradition, but not only there, it's, I mean, it's a Christian tradition mm-hmm. and, a, and a rabbinic one as well. I mean, standing up and expositing the, you know, the meaning of the text, you see this in, in the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures as well too. So, but the Protestant tradition, you know, it's manifested in the architecture as well, you know, that the pulpit replaces the altar largely mm-hmm. in a lot of traditions. Now it's especially in the pietistic evangelical tradition where the sermon gets longer and longer, the Puritan and other, those kind of traditions more so than the Lutheran and definitely more than the Anglican tradition, which is still going to be, have a homily always, but probably pretty comparable in length to the, to the Roman church as well. I would think maybe a little right. bit longer. Like a so 10 to 15 minute. Yeah, I think so. It's a, it's especially the pietistic Puritan evangelical kind of tradition that really has put a ton of emphasis on long sermons. Um, So, you know, I think I have kind of a a, a nuanced view on it and that I do think the proclamation and the invitation and the exposition and the exaltation of having scripture be in front of people and explained uh, is both biblical and ancient and wise for now as well. And at the same time, I do think probably in the traditions we're in and I'm in, there's probably 
too much expectation that the sermon can do more work than it can really do. Mm. Um, and one of the, uh, that was not a very clearly way, clear way to say that. I, I think we expect the sermon to do more than, than is probably what people really need. I think people need uh, the sermon plus other avenues for understanding both biblical and theological and practical truths. And I think a lot of times we've probably put too much expectation that the sermon can bear the weight of that. It's just not a, it's a beautiful bucket, but it doesn't, it doesn't carry all the water that needs Mm. to, to, to uh, fertilize and enrich people's lives. Um, So I don't know, maybe that's similar to you or, or not. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's very close to where I'm at as well. And I, I, but I stare at a, at churches, you know, in my in my loose affiliation of traditions that that are putting a lot of emphasis on the sermon is doing a lot of work, and I'm seeing more and more, uh, from what I can tell, uh, a sermon which is discussing text, which I, I always say preaching to me now feels in the evangelical context feels like uh, being in a book club where you're the only one who read the book, yeah, um, and so. At what point, or are there minor adjustments, or we haven't talking major adjustments now? At what point is the sermon? Does it become a distorting lens because the people don't even understand the text and the context of those texts to which the sermon is referring? Um, and so the sermon has to keep morphing into what you call teaching rather than preaching. Where, mm-hmm. um, and I, I mean, I, I'm throwing the worst problems of American Christianity at you here. So yeah, that's okay. Uh, or, or, yeah, if I could change the metaphor, I would think of it ever as a distorting lens. I guess there's probably some really bad preaching that is, but I just mean when it done well, I, I think I prefer the, the uh, metaphor of a funnel. So if you think about Sunday morning and all that happens on a Sunday morning, whether it's a 15 minute homily or a 45 minute sermon, whatever, that all of that is at the top of the funnel, that that's uh, for all people, all people are welcome. Mm. You're, and, I, and I do think you have to give a message that is appropriate for that. It's monological. Right. So, you know, you're not talking about, I always tell my Greek students, you know, shouldn't be talking about textual criticism, you know, or, or the million other things uh, in that are at this monological top of the funnel, welcoming people in. And then you've got, you're coming down the funnel, you know, I don't know what all the layers would be, but like adult Sunday school or other mm-hmm. Sunday school things where it's more of a dialogical, where there's still some depth. You've got maybe home groups where you're wrestling, reading a book or reading a book of the Bible or wrestling with things all the way down to kind of one-on-one or one-on-three discipleship where you're working through materials, maybe memorizing scripture, et cetera. So mm. if you think about a funnel, all of those things uh, contribute to what the end goal, which is to make disciples or to build up in people the twin love, you know, to channel some Augustine here of greater love for God and greater love for neighbor, well, channeling Jesus, I guess, as well. And, and so all of that is the work of discipleship. And I think preaching is really very, very important, but it's got to be understood for what it is. It's this monological, invitational, shaping event but it's not the same thing uh, as all the work of making a disciple. Yeah, I notice you you often talk about the the sermon as kind of a form of leadership as well as mm-hmm. uh, displaying and taking leadership. And then also on the flip side, uh, I thought it was just very practical advice. Like you probably shouldn't be expounding theodicy in a sermon. That's something that right. actually is better worked on in a dialogical setting where you can um, dialogical just meaning we can converse back and forth. Questions can be asked. Uh, and with expected answers. 
So, um, how do you how do you know when? Because I can't tell you, as you probably guess, how many times I've stepped down from preaching and somebody said, "Well, that was really good teaching." <laughs> uh, and I was like, that's funny. I thought I was preaching my butt off up there, right? Uh, I thought I was really going at it. Um, but I think everybody has an in- invisible, fuzzy, amorphous view of what is preaching, what is teaching. You separated by monologue and dialogue. But how would, like, how do you know internally when you've crossed over and w- yeah. when you should kind of stay in the lane of preaching versus, oh, we need to take a moment and teach, or I, this needs to be a teaching we get out to everybody on Sunday? Oh man, that's a great question. And I, and I think I, I get that too. I mean, I think my messages are, I think, uh, well, maybe I'm completely self-deceived, but I think they're, I think they're well-received and accessible, but I do think probably most people would say that I'm bringing a lot, you know, and I know my wife definitely says I'm bringing too much, uh, too much content. Um, and so I think I probably, uh, on that preaching teaching line, I'm um, probably closer to the teaching part of that spectrum, I guess. But mm. uh, so, what is the difference? Well, one of the dis- differences I do make is uh, monological versus dialogical. So, at least when I teach, which is a lot, um, I'm constantly interacting with students. I'm asking questions. I'm inviting questions. That's harder to do in the pulpit. You know, it's not that right. would be kind of weird. So that's although one. I do I do that. Do you? I ask real questions and demand answers from people in the, in the pulpit, but, but in like a Latino church, you can do that or a black yeah. church, you can, you, like you can yeah. actually get away with that. I've tried that in like stodgy white churches totally. right. to, to dead silence. <laughs> I am sure. I'm sure. And then size too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah. But so, but what, you know, what else is the difference? I, I do think again, topics, I think there are certain things again that require a more dialogical setting. Uh, and I do think tone, uh, for me, a lot of it is that I see all preaching as an invitation to see the world in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. And occasionally there might be, you know, a prophetic element that is a, you know, a, a call or a challenge or whatever. But primarily, even even that, I, I like to frame it all as I'm, I am modeling for them a, a way of seeing the world and a way of inhabiting the world really um that 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 that's what i'm doing in in the preaching moment which is again mm-hmm. it is a it's an event that i think that's a big difference too teaching is a conversation preaching is an event and i don't mean by that in a you know insincere or you know right a smoke and mirrors kind of thing but you you have to let it be what it is it's a it's a moment for a called person to stand up there and help us see God in a certain way and, and see ourselves in a certain way. And I think that's, that is a really helpful frame uh, to distinguish that from teaching, which is going to be a lot more content driven, I think. Yeah. So when I'm teaching, like you, I ask a lot of questions, um, and, and half the time my questions are just so I can figure out if people are tracking with me or how well they're tracking with me or if I need to adjust or stop and explain. 
So if it is an event, an event where I'm trying to have gain clarity and um, and help people to see something the way uh, that I have that I see it, that I think is worth seeing it that way. Um, is there any way that you can ultimately figure out whether people tracked with you or not? Hmm. Well, with a with a sermon, it's hard. Um, I think it's it's really long game knowing the people, seeing what impact it has in their lives, dialoguing with them. But it's really hard because what you usually get at the end of the sermon is a small percentage of people that obligatorily and or sincerely tell you, good job, you know, right. and then and then a small percentage too are like, I'm mad about this. You know, I can't believe he said that. Right. <laughs> and then and then look out the, for the guy that makes a beeline for you. after for the sure. sermon. <laughs> yeah. Or the emails, you know, you get an email at 1106. And so that. I don't, I think for the vast majority of people, you have no idea what's really happening except for playing the long game and living with them. So I I love to go and preach other places, but I'll tell you what, over the last five years, I care less and less about preaching other places. And I care more and more about preaching in my, my church because I've just gotten to know the people at my church more and more I've walked with them and helped them with parenting issues and divorce issues and sadness and job loss and joys and whatever else. And it just, that is what real ministry is about. And so my preaching to them, it's in that life on life dialogue uh, with them is what's really happening. And so that's just more and more important to me. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah, no, I think that's part of it too. And, <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it's the you know I've heard techniques like I know Tim Keller for a long time, and I think redeem, some Redeemer churches in New York City they have a Q and A session after. The yeah, show. yeah. That so you'll get some immediate feedback uh, that way. Or you know when I when I preached, I would typically reach out to people and say you know people who I knew would be direct and blunt with me, and you know say how did that hit and. Like, well, you kept talking about that thing, and I didn't understand what, why you were talking about that, right? So it's good to have a little network. I also, oh, okay, I was like, should we bring this up? Yeah, we should totally bring this up. I, I also am in the habit of telling people don't listen to other preachers. Uh, if, if you know, uh, not great Except preachers. for me. Except for me. Yeah. Right. Um, who don't know you, right? Like even, and like you said, when I preach somewhere else, um, I'm like, well, I can't. You know, I have to tell people at the beginning, like, if anything I say you think is me coming after you, it's not because I don't know you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we're at my church, I'd totally be coming after you because I know your <laughs> sin, right? I know your sin, I know my sin, and I know how they work together, right? Uh, but there is this kind of, uh, like, the reason you shouldn't listen to Tim Keller sermons, or at least not in a way that you compare them to your pastor's sermons, is because Tim Keller doesn't know you, right? Um, mm-hmm. And he he didn't craft that message for you. You know, C.S. Lewis did not write to you. He wrote to his fellow British uh, countrymen, um, and he wrote in a way that he thought that they could understand. So I, I, I do, I, I wonder, and I think about this a lot, has the media of preaching you know, the podcast and the YouTube videos, has that in some way like just submarined a lot of um, what would be what we generally consider good faithful preaching? Yeah, that's that is a tricky one, isn't it? Because, of course, excellence and goodness and beauty um, are beneficial. And there's a reason we still read Augustine 
You know, right. I mean, there are things that are written down and kept and preserved and spread, distributed widely in its own day and later because they really are excellent. So I, I wouldn't be opposed, but I think I agree with what you're concerned about, which is the celebrity, the celebra- celebritification. Can I make yeah. up a, we'll try a that one uh, of of preaching and then an expectation that the event is going to be this like, Oh my goodness. You know, every time (laughs) as opposed to just this faithful living together exposition or unpacking or helping to see uh, who God is that, that, you know, that's beneficial in a way that is far more uh, life you know, impacting than just the celebrity moment. But I, but I also don't want to say, you know, there's a reason we know Tim Keller's name because man, when you listen right. to his sermons, they're super insightful. And I, I wouldn't want to take that away from somebody, you know what I mean? So that's, I feel just kind of split on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe the, the, the kind of uncritical theological entertainment imbibement of a Tim Keller sermon, or like, I just want to hear, I just want to listen to a great sermon versus yeah. Right. I want to hear this guy who is talking to a certain population in a certain situation who who God did not appoint to me as my pastor. Um, and I think there, yeah. So I think there's a way in which you can carefully uh, imbibe in those. But I've certainly run into people who do not carefully imbibe in them. I'm sure you're uh, right. You're probably they, right. Yeah. yeah. It hasn't happened to me, but I've heard of pastors telling me that they'll finish preaching on a certain passage and immediately someone will tell them, you know, I heard a sermon by Tim Keller on this where he talked about X, Y, Z and, um, and basically just shamed the person unknowingly. Um, Mm -hmm. so, um, is preaching performance art? What do you mean by performance art? (laughs) (laughs) Is, is it a performance? Maybe we could just put it that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, yes. If one does not tack on all negative evocations to performance, which probably today that English word performance right. is probably mostly negative. It means, uh, you know, an effected show that isn't sincere. But so if that's what a performance means, then no. But is it an event that is um, live and, uh, artistic in the sense that there's creativity happening in that moment. I think, yes, that's, I think what's so wonderful about it as, I mean, what, why do get, why get together on a Sunday morning at all? I mean, why not just sort of, uh, you know, just hear the very best music or read, why not just read the words of a song, right? right. Why waste your time the, with the meter and the, and why the, not just watch a sermon on, on YouTube. Yeah, well, that or I just mean like, <laughs> why not just download the data somehow? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's because the uh, like, just read a book about it or something. It's because there's something that happens in the live event of being with other people. And I'm not even making a comment about online versus not, although I think this certainly right. applies. But really, just the the live event that I think we can analogize to. You know, we could all get the same and probably better nutrients from an IV bag mm-hmm. as opposed to a great meal. Like I, you know, our went to a, I went to a top boss restaurant with a bunch of friends the other night and like every, every course was this like mouth explosion of joy, you know? And like, could I get those same nutrients from an IV bag? Yes, I could, but it's not the same as the actual experience and the experience with others of the joy of it. And when I think about preaching, I think about singing, 
that that is something that is different than just the content contained therein. It's an event, and in that sense, it's a performance, but but not in a negative sense. Well, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, thank you so much for your wisdom and for this book, Small Preaching, 25 Little Things You Can Do to Become a Better Preacher. Always good to talk with you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 